Yes, almighty God, our prayer this evening is that as we come to your word, we might behold you, our God. We thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, we may dare to come to your throne, trusting not in our own righteousness, but in his completed work at the cross. And so, Father, we thank you for all that you give us. We thank you for these gifts that have been given this evening and the many others through the week. And we pray that you might take them now and use them for your purposes. That Jesus Christ might be known more widely in this city and across this world. That he might be lifted high and that his name might be worshipped and glorified. Amen. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. Like a fish flopping into a boat. Like a two-legged camel. He'll never succeed with that. Those are just a few of the comments from the media and from competitors as a young athlete from the US prepared for the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. His technique was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. And the elite of the sports were... Skeptical, to say the least. The thing is, that young athlete was a man called Dick Fosbury, and his sport was high jump. As the competition wore on in Mexico, it became clear that the Fosbury flop, as his new technique became known, was actually a feat of athletic genius. It allowed Fosbury to jump higher than anyone else in the field, and he flopped his way to Olympic gold and a new Olympic record. Within a few short years, his technique became the standard for elite high jumpers. And you know, as we move on in the book of Jonah this evening, my hope is that we might feel something similar to Fosbury's critics. You see, it's in chapters 3 and 4 that we really begin to get a picture of what's going on. Uh, These are much less well-known chapters. You won't find these in your average children's Bible. And yet it's here that we really begin to get a handle on what this whole book might actually be about. And what we'll find is that these chapters are full of surprises. Surprises that will make us ask, what is God doing? Because on the face of it, God's plan and his way of going about it seem far from orthodox. And yet, as we'll see, they are, of course, completely genius. Just take a look at the start of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God is is still persisting with Jonah. Whatever he's doing in this man's life, he hasn't finished after the whole fish episode. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. He still wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. And here, perhaps, is the first surprise. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This time, Jonah 
obeys. Maybe he's beginning to realize that the Lord is at work, and once the Lord starts a work, he carries it on to completion. But whatever his reasons, Jonah obeys, and he goes to Nineveh. He walks through the city proclaiming God's judgment on the people there. Forty days they have to repent, forty days until God brings down this proud and arrogant stronghold of the Assyrian Empire. You can imagine Jonah's nervousness, can't you, as as he walked through those streets, laying bare God's anger at the behavior of the Ninevites. And Jonah was in for a shock. Take a look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The Ninevites believed God. Well, no one saw that coming. Remember, we've already said that that these are pretty unsavory characters, not the sort of people who are used to listening to Yahweh, the God of Israel. You know, it, it was incredible that God would have a plan for them at all, but now we're beginning to learn exactly what that plan was. And it's mind blowing. God's plan for the Ninevites. God's plan for the violent, bloodthirsty, murderous, evil Ninevites, God's plan for them was repentance. His plan was that they should turn from their evil ways and that he would save them from destruction, from the destruction they deserved. From the men and women in the streets right up to the king, the response is remarkable. Again, just compare it with Jonah's response to the command of God. He, the the Hebrew prophet, the one we're supposed to admire, he turned and ran from God. But they, the Ninevites, the Nazis of their day, they also turned but they turned towards God. They heard his voice and they repented of their sin. There's no question here, God is at work and his plan is not just to intervene in the lives of the Ninevites, his plan is to save them. Even them. You know, I had a wonderful conversation here at church a few years ago. I was chatting with one of my friends, and we'd both uh, just met another man who was new to the church. I'd had a a perfectly pleasant, very normal conversation with this man, but my friend, well, well, he came away from speaking with him, and he was absolutely glowing, clearly very excited, and yet at the same time, slightly baffled. I can't believe it, he said to me. It's him. You see, it turns out that that my friend knew the guy, or or at least had met him a number of years ago, before either of them were Christians. It's amazing, said my friend. I couldn't name anyone more unlikely to become a Christian than that guy I met back then. I can't think of anyone who was further from God. Back then, that man had had been into drugs. He'd he'd lived a lifestyle that I guess most of us would have recognized as profoundly anti-Christian. And yet now here he was, 
Having gone along to an evangelistic course that someone had invited him to, he went as a, as a skeptic, but, but came away thinking there might be something in this. And to cut a, a long story short, he became a Christian and, and got baptized. And you know, I, I wonder how often do we have the same attitude as my friend did? Are there people you know? Maybe your course mates, your flatmates, your colleagues, maybe your family. And you look at some of those people and, and you couldn't imagine anyone less likely to become a Christian. Anyone less likely to respond to, to an invitation to a CU event or to come along to church with you. That's certainly how any ancient Israelite would have felt about the Ninevites. And yet here we see that God has plans even for those who seem far off. God has plans for all those people you think would never say yes. You know, maybe, maybe just maybe this time they will say yes. Because God has a plan. He's a God who is involved. He's a God who is at work in this world. And the stunning truth that we see here in the book of Jonah is that, that actually it is just those kinds of people that God is interested in saving. Because you see, God's plan is not simply to save. God's plan is to save sinners. Just let that sink in for a moment. God's plan is, is to save sinners. It's the sort of thing that, that we hear all the time in church, isn't it? But you know, I, I want to go back for a minute to, to Dick Fosbury and his crazy new high jump technique. Because you see, for me, and I guess for anyone my age or younger, this technique, well, well it just doesn't look that crazy. This is how you do the high jump, isn't it? And maybe for those of us who've been around church for a while, the idea that God saves sinners doesn't seem that revolutionary. But you know, back in 1968, this was insane. No one did the high jump like that. It would be outrageous to even think about doing it, especially at the Olympics. But because we're now so used to seeing it, we, we miss the significance of this magnificent, revolutionary, genius breakthrough. A breakthrough that changed the sport forever. And you know, every single world religion says that it's those who get it right who get saved. It's those who behave in the right way, or do the right things, or say the right prayers, or live upright lives. It's the good guys who get saved. Every single God that this world has to offer works on that basis. Every single God, that is. Except one. Yahweh. The God of the Bible. The only true and living God. Friends, this God has a plan like no other. 
This God's plan is to save sinners. To save the worst of sinners. To save people like that guy my friend knew. To save even people like the Ninevites. That is the sort of person that this God, the God of the Bible, is interested in. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, Jonah certainly thinks so. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's angry, isn't he? He's really angry. At first glance, we may feel like it's a slightly weird thing to be angry about. He's angry because God is forgiving. He's angry because God showed compassion and grace. He's angry because God is loving towards sinners. But don't you think, in one sense, that actually Jonah's anger makes perfect sense? How could God save people like the Ninevites? Such horrible vile people. Surely God can't save people who live like that. God saves sinners, the very people who rebel against him. Well, friends, look really carefully at what happens in Nineveh when they hear God's word against them. Read verse 5 of chapter 3 again with me. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Did you see what happened? The Ninevites did two things, but crucially, look at what order they did them in. They believed. Then they came to God in repentance. Then they changed their behavior. Belief first, changed behavior second. And that's vital. Because you see, at one level, Jonah is not wrong. God is angry with the Ninevites. He's appalled at their behavior, and and he does want them to change. But the root to that change is belief in Yahweh as the true God of the universe first. Then that leads to changed behavior, not the other way around. See, Jonah wants the Ninevites to change first, to become a little more acceptable first. Then they can come to God. But God... God is interested in their hearts first and foremost. He wants humble and broken hearts to acknowledge their need and to come to him in faith. Faith that he can do something about it. Just look at the king's words from verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It is so, so different from Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Jonah wanted to highlight all that he was doing, all that God owed him. But the king, this, this pagan king, this leader of the terrible and horrible Ninevites, well, he has been humbled. He comes to God not only as his savior, but also as his Lord. Humbly, he bows before the maker of the universe and asks for his compassion and mercy. Not because he deserves it, he knows that he doesn't, but because he has faith in God. Faith in what God is doing in this world. Faith that what God is doing is saving sinners, even the worst of sinners. Friends, God's plan isn't crazy, it's genius. And so we need to stop requiring people to change their behavior before they put their trust in Christ. That's not what God requires. That's not what he requires of us. Don't get me wrong, God's salvation does lead to changed lives, to changed behavior. It, it does lead to repentance. Nothing could be clearer in the lives of the Ninevites. But that is a change that God brings about after we have come to him. After we have come to him in faith. God doesn't set out to save perfect people. He sets out to save sinners. And you know, I think that points us to a second reason why Jonah is so angry at the start of chapter 4. Just think about it for a minute. If that's the sort of person that God's interested in, well then what does that say about you? About me? We need to see that this isn't just surprising. It's shocking. And for Jonah, it's all too much. Look again at the end of verse 2 of chapter 4. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You know, I wonder if just sometimes, just sometimes, we might respond in the same way. We probably don't have a, a little tantrum like Jonah does. But in our heart of hearts, do we ever wish that God was, well, or just a bit more respectable in the people that he chooses to deal with? Wouldn't it be a bit more convenient if God was interested in, in the respectable people in society? If he wanted us to go to the nice people, to the upright people, why does he have to save sinners all the time? Couldn't he save more people like, well, like Jonah? Like me, 
This is where I think we really begin to understand what Jonah's angry about. Because this is where we see the uncomfortable realization that is just beginning to dawn on Jonah. Because you see, in going to the Ninevites, God had actually shown an interest in saving people just like Jonah. Just like you. And just like me. Because if the gospel is that sinners are saved, well then if we're saved then we are sinners. In chapter 2, Jonah wanted to make much of the difference between him and the idol-worshipping pagans. But here in chapter 3, God wants Jonah to see just how similar he is to the Ninevites. What God says about the Ninevites tells us something about Jonah and about you and about me. God doesn't have a plan to save righteous people. They don't need saving. God's plan is to save sinners. And part of what God has been teaching Jonah is that that includes him. You see, back in chapter 2, Jonah seems to have got some grasp of God as his saviour. But it's only now when he sees how God deals with the Ninevites the realization slowly dawns on Jonah that if God has saved him, then that means he's just as much a sinner as the Ninevites were. I think Jonah knew that God was a saving God, but he was shocked when he saw the depth of God's saving love. And he was shocked when he saw just how far God was prepared to go to save sinners. Just how low he was prepared to stoop to lift us from the pit. But you know, that was only the beginning. Because that God, the God who is at work in his world, the God whose plan is to save sinners, that same God who sent Jonah to Nineveh so that they might be saved, Centuries later, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth so that sinners like you and me might be saved. You see, Jonah struggled to grasp the depth of God's grace. I wonder how he'd have coped with the cross of Jesus Christ. The God himself would take on flesh that he would stoop so low, that he would give himself, that he would die, that he would die a criminal's death. Why? To save. To save sinners. To save those who were utterly unable to save themselves. Just hear what we read in Romans chapter 5 about the lengths God will go to to save sinners. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even for the likes of the Ninevites. 
even for the likes of you and me. Even for the self-righteous, arrogant fools like Jonah. That is exactly the kind of person Jesus died to save. He didn't wait for them to change their behavior. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's question in in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 4 hangs in the air unanswered. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Given what he's done for us, given where we have come from, given how far he was prepared to stoop to save us, are we really going to question God's decision to save others? Friends, as Jonah looks over the city of Nineveh and rants against God, God is at work. He's at work to to puncture Jonah's pride, to make him realize that he is no better, no more deserving than the Ninevites he despises. And as we read these words today, God may well be doing the same in our hearts. We need to grasp, we need to remember that we have done nothing to deserve God's love. And yet he is a God who has gone to extraordinary lengths to save sinners, even the worst of them. You see, God is indeed a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That truth shouldn't make us angry. It should instead lead us to praise, to astonished thanks, to to humble obedience. And it should lead us to compassion and welcome. You know, there's a world full of people like the Ninevites out there. There's a world full of people like you and like me and like Jonah. So will we go in compassion and call them to Jesus Christ? And friends, when they walk through those doors, will we welcome them with love? recognizing that God wants to do a a great work in their lives, a work which starts not with behavior change or with a more acceptable lifestyle, but a work which starts with a broken and contrite heart. None of us deserve God's gracious salvation. But in his mercy, by his spirit, he is at work in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners to bring about resurrection through Jesus Christ, his son. I'll praise God that he does things his way. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us this evening 
not to miss the wonder of the cross. Not to miss the stunning truth that you came not only to save, but to save sinners. And so, Lord, where we need it, would you humble us? Would you help us to realize that that we have not and cannot do anything to deserve your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your love? And yet, Lord, then would you lift our eyes to the cross of Christ to see that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Might that lead us to praise, to astonished thanksgiving, to humble obedience. And might it lead us to go to a world that needs Jesus with compassion and to welcome them here. That we might see more of your work in the lives of sinners to turn them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we long to see more of that here in this church, in this city, around this world. For his sake and for his glory we pray. Amen.